we've been having problems with a computer lately because the internet's cutting out. So our messages are not getting recorded because they're, the internet's cutting out. So we'll see if it works today, if it, if it lasts with us. But, um, this story functions a couple different ways, right? So there's, there's, there's different things going on in it. One is the way it functions in the story. Okay. So something is happening that functions in Jesus' engagement with the, the, the story of his coming into Jerusalem and then going to the cross and all those things like that. Um, there's another piece of it where Jesus is teaching something, and that teaching has a, a specific context in it as well, right? So we're going to kind of hit this from a couple of different aspects using those as a framework, all right? So the first issue, the issue of the way that it plays in, in this particular story, this story where Jesus has come into Jerusalem in the final week of his life or earthly life or first earthly life, um, before his crucifixion, he's come to the city and he's engaging with the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and all these different things. And so this beginning of the way this, the, the story plays in the passage is is maybe the best way to say it is in the immortal words of Admiral Akbar at the Battle of Endor. It's a trap, right? It's a trap. Okay. Some of y'all are like, what are you talking about, Ash? It, it's okay. I just wanted to see, you know, who would get it. Uh thanks, David. Um so it's a trap. The whole purpose of this a story is a trap. And the whole purpose of the passage is that Jesus sees and avoids the trap. All right. So that's the first thing that I want to look at. So Jesus, again, has entered into the temple complex. He is engaging with the priests and the scribes and experts of the law. And he's presented with this question. And that question could on the surface be an honest question about an honest issue. The scribes ask him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So that presenting issue there is probably what we would call a poll tax. Now, you may not be familiar with that term, but a, a poll tax sometimes is also called a head tax, which basically means it's a tax on you being a living person, essentially. You just have to pay this tax, not because you've done a certain thing or gone to a certain place or spent a certain money or whatever. It's a tax on you being alive. And they take it from everybody who is alive. And now that money in this context would have gone directly to Rome. It would have gone directly to the empire. It wouldn't have been fed back into the local economy or the local infrastructure or anything like that. It was a tax that the empire was taking based on the population and going directly to the emperor. And that raises legitimate moral questions for, for people. Should we give money to a government that we know is going to use that money for unbiblical things? That's a legitimate moral question that we should ask ourselves, right? We're still asking those questions today. A, a, a point of contention over the last few election cycles and, and certainly over the last couple of presidential elections has been this thing that's called the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment was legislation that barred uh, taxpayer money from funding abortions. Okay. And so that's, it's, it's a similar issue. Should Christians be obligated to give money to the government if the government is going to use it for things that we know to be morally wrong? All right. That's a, that's a fair moral question. But here's the problem. That's not what's really going on in the passage. 
What's really going on is an attempt to put Jesus in a situation where he will have to alienate or at least incur the wrath of somebody, either the Roman authorities on one side or his Jewish countrymen on the other. That's what's really going on. So again, for many Jews, this was a blatant condescension to the Roman Empire and to the Roman occupation, right? They were saying, we shouldn't give the Romans any tax dollars because they are an occupying force and we shouldn't do it. They're godless. They're using it to oppress people. We shouldn't give them anything. But at the same time, the Roman government demanded the tax as the occupying nation and a refusal to give the tax would be an act of rebellion. And so they would see it as you rebelling against the government. So here's the deal. It's a trap because really it has nothing to do with the tax at a level. Because really what's going on is they're asking a bigger question. They're essentially asking the question, hey, Jesus, whose side are you on? But again, not even asking that question honestly, but really asking the question because they know that it's going to divide people. It's going to put people on opposite sides of each other. It's going to put Jesus into a camp where this side will hate him, or it's going to put him in this camp where this side will hate him. The scribes and the Pharisees don't really care what Jesus thinks about these things. The point is to alienate him. Now, obviously, maybe just sitting here and hearing me say those things, you can see the similarities with our current political and cultural climate on lots of issues that have the same kind of the function. To alienate one group from another, to get to a group of people to say, now we are enemies because we have different views on in whatever issue. But, but what we see in the passage is Jesus is smarter than that. Jesus doesn't fall into the trap. But in the process of not falling into this trap, he teaches us a few things about sort of the nature of the trap, you could say, and how we might avoid falling into these traps. And so here's the first thing that I think we notice as we look at this passage, or maybe a principle that we could draw from it. And it would be this, not everyone is really looking for an answer, right? That's the first principle. Not everyone is really looking for an answer. So we continue to talk about the effects of of social media, the internet on our culture, right? We have to talk about these things. Um, The internet and social media are monumental technologies, world-changing technologies, probably the most world-changing kind of technologies that we have had in, you know, since the printing press or something like that, right? And probably even greater than those. And here's another reality is that technology is in its infancy and we are its guinea pigs. We don't know what a society looks like having 24-hour connection to the internet, 24-hour connection to social media. We don't know the effect that that has on society, on a people, on a church, on a family, because we're just experimenting with it. It's brand new. In the history of world technology, it's a blip, okay? And we're in the middle of that. And so we have to talk about how it is affecting things. But Jesus and, and, and this, the issue of social media and social interaction plays heavily on the idea that we see in this passage because Jesus is demonstrating a truth that, again, we all instinctively know. Not everyone who poses a question to you is looking for honest answers. They're not looking for meaningful debate. They're not looking for understanding. They're not interested in those things, right? In this case, they pretend to be sincere. They try to set up 
with flattery. They try to set up with this crafty question or whatever. Their intent, though, is to trap Jesus. They don't, they're not looking for an answer. They're looking to trap him in his statement. And here's the deal. We have to realize that there are lots of people like this in the world. People who have similar motives to the scribes and the Pharisees. And here's what, what makes it that hard for us, because the Bible teaches us something. It's a passage we talk about all the time in here. The Bible teaches us to be ready in and out of season to give an answer for the hope that you have. All right? We are called to that. You have to be ready in and out of season to give people an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You're supposed to do that with gentleness and respect. So the truth, that truth, that right, that responsibility gives us an impulse to speak truth into the world. That's why you want to comment on social media, right? Uh, maybe it's, you may, that may not be the only thing going on in your heart, but it's, I hope, at least part of it. When you see something wrong or sinful or misapplied or something, there's something in you that says, I need to correct that. I need to say what the Bible says about that. I need to say what the truth is about that situation. There's an impulse there, but here's the point that I'm trying to make is that we are called to give an answer, but we should also recognize that lots of people aren't really looking for answers. They're setting traps. That's the intent. So that is to say, don't step into those traps. Now we got to be honest. It's hard for us to know when it's a trap and when it's not. Okay. Jesus was good at that because he knows everything. Okay, He can see people's hearts. It's a lot easier for for Jesus to see the the things going on behind the scenes than maybe it is for me and you to to know that in a conversation with somebody that we're having on Facebook. Okay, We we may not know what their motives are, but you know what? I think if we're honest, we can know lots of warning signs. We can see warning signs for people who are not looking for answers. They're trying to set traps. When there are people who have obvious axes to grind, they're probably not looking for answers. They're setting traps. When people are heavily invested in their own answers, and on one side I would say, well, aren't we all heavily invested in our own answers? But but the way I mean it is, so let's take an issue like the legalization of marijuana. If you have a corporate conglomeration that has invested hundreds of millions of dollars into the industry, they're probably not the most unbiased people to listen to on the benefits or costs of legalization of marijuana, right? They are heavily invested in one of the answers. And so you know what? There's a problem there. They're not looking for a debate. They're looking to tell you what the answer should be. When people arrange elaborate hypothetical scenarios but then they want a simple yes or no answer. They're not looking for answers. They're setting traps, right? When they seem to be more interested in showing you up, whether that is attacking you personally or making you look foolish for their own uh, anger, uh, emphasis or, or, or so that they would be puffed up or whatever like that, that's a warning sign, Okay. Jesus is just, he's never afraid to say hard things. And so if Jesus has to give a hard answer, he'll give a hard answer. That's not the point. The point is this, a lot of people aren't looking for answers. They're setting traps for you, so don't take the trap. Don't step into it. See the trap and say, I'm a bounce. 
All right. So that's a piece of what we see in this passage, a principle that maybe we can glean from it. I'm not sure that that's exactly what Jesus is teaching, but it's certainly something we can draw from this passage. But maybe more specifically, the issues of church and politics and relation to the state are on are on display in this passage because of the question, because of Jesus' answer to the question. And so I think the, the passage gives us some biblical insights into the relationship with, between Christian citizenship in the kingdom of God and Christian citizenship in the kingdom of man. And again, man, there couldn't be probably a more contemporary pressing issue for us. As, as we start to navigate what it looks like to live in, in an American culture in the United States that is quickly moving to be post-Christian at multiple levels. That's, this is an important issue for us. But it's not a new issue. It is a perennial issue. The church has always had to figure out how it's going to relate to the state. We talk often about uh, St. Augustine, who wrote a book in, in the late 3rd, early 4th, late 300s, early 400s, called The City of God, that was dealing with that very issue, asking the question about, man, how does the church relate to a collapsing Roman Empire? Here's the government. What should our responsibility be? How should we relate to these things? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent? Will the church go on? Will the church fall with this country? What do we need to do? So I think the case is, is that Jesus points us towards a couple of principles again that we can zoom in on. The first of which that is just demonstrated by the nature of his answer, render, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render under God what is God's, is that maybe many issues, most issues, are more complex than either or decisions, than yes or no matrix. They're more complex than that. That was the truth in Augustine's time. The empire was collapsing, and it was at least nominally Christian, that was good in a way. And yet there were these pagan barbarians coming into the nation on the rise at the gates. But in some cases, they were Christianizing. And so they were a new Christian nation that was coming in as they were exposed to, to the Latin Christian world. And so all these questions come up, man. What role does the church have in terms of its citizenship, its loyalty to Rome, its self-interest, the missionary and evangelistic calling of the church. As, as these invaders come in, what responsibility do we have to say, hey, our first thing is going to be to evangelize these people, draw them to Jesus Christ? What about the good of society? The list of complexities keeps on going, all right? It's not an easy either-or issue. And the case was no less distinct in the time of Jesus for the Jews. How do you balance the ethnic nationalism of the Jews with political autonomy, with an occupying pagan empire, and yet one that has brought various goods and social advantages to, to the culture and to the world. Again, our situation currently poses all those same questions, doesn't it? Allegiance to nation, political party, ethnic interests in the midst of a nation that's was founded on Christian principles, or at least partially on Christian principles, whose laws are grounded in Judeo-Christian heritage, and yet it's rushing headlong into secularity. Not to mention the complexities that come along with saying, we don't have a king that we either have to submit to or rebel against. We are the kings, in a sense, because we live in a democratic republic. We vote on these things. We are responsible to exercise political power. 
in our country. All these things, man, the, the point is, is that these issues are multidimensional. They're not easy to just say, we're all over here, or we're all over here. In light of all these realities of complexity, the passage doesn't give us a lot of either-or answers, right? It isn't demonstrating a hard distinction between the church and the state. It's not saying these things have nothing to do with each other or they have everything to do with each other. That's not what it's talking about. And it isn't explaining what to do in situations where the government demands things that are explicitly forbidden in Scripture. So, again, they were demanding a tax that could be used in all kinds of different ways, but they weren't saying, give us your money so that we can turn around and, like, do something really bad with it. Okay, do something, uh, build a pagan temple, tear down God's, you know, hire a construction crew to tear down the current temple and place a pagan altar there. They they weren't doing that. And it's it's not engaging with those questions anyway. But Jesus' answer, nevertheless, implies certain things. He says, render to Caesar what is the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God. They want answers to be hardlined, to be separated. But Jesus says, my answer to that question, it doesn't make me an enemy of the people of Israel. And it doesn't make me an enemy to Rome either, because everything's more complex than that. I'm not a traitor to Israel if I pay the tax, and I'm not a rebel against Rome if I think it's morally problematic to pay the tax. Things are more complicated than that. So, for example, I am staunchly, unapologetically, emphatically pro-life. There is no context ever which I think the killing of an unborn child is not undebatably morally wrong. There is no scenario, there is no circumstance in which I look at it and say, that's morally neutral or even morally good to do that, ever. All right? That's my understanding of the scripture. And yet, I should incorporate other things into that truth. So, for example, that view, which tends to rise to the top, doesn't address a whole aspect of other issues, like the typical issues that would come from the so-called pro-choice movement. Issues that revolve around the the life and well-being of the mother, the life and well-being of the child once it is born. All right? I want good for those mothers. I want them to flourish in all aspects of their life. I don't want them to be unduly hindered in any way. Moreover, I want those children that are born to be in the best possible situation. And I know statistics would tell us and the plain teaching of scripture would tell us that children being raised in in homes without fathers and single parent homes, there's going to be problems there. There's going to be added difficulty there, economic hardship. All kinds of things are going to ensue from that. Those issues aren't nothing. And we should recognize that's a real thing. That's a complex thing. And so I would say, again, as we've said many times before when it comes to this issue, what if the church could care about unborn children and care about single mothers? Yeah, but actually you can't. you got to pick one. You have to love one and hate the other. And the answer is, says who? Political parties? Yeah, that's what they say. But that's not the reality. 
So you might say, well, Ash, is what you're saying that some issues aren't black and white, there's more gray in them? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's gray in most of these issues. In fact, I'm saying that almost every issue in life is totally black and white. But what I am saying is this, you can love multiple goods and you can hate multiple evils. And sometimes goods and evils have strange, make bed, strange bedfellows, right? Sometimes there's goods and evils that seem to be stuck together. And then there's goods and evils over here that seem to be stuck together. And what I'm saying is Christians, we don't have to say, well, I got to take all these with everything that comes and I got to take all these with everything that comes. No, it means I can say, I like that good and I like that good. And I hate that evil and I hate that evil. We don't have to be thrown into a dichotomy that our modern political process forces us into. And I think Jesus is saying that, or at least the implication of saying, you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, you render unto God what is God's, implies that. All right, a second thing, as a function of that, Jesus is demonstrating that we can owe loyalty or at least obedience to entities that in some ways have conflicting interests. Does that make sense? We can owe obedience or loyalty to entities that in some ways have conflicting interests. So again, Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Render unto God the things that belong to God. The implication is that there are things that are legitimately entrusted to the government and that we, even in the case of a pagan government, we owe to the government. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Remember, Romans is written to Rome in the midst of the Roman Empire. Lots of bad stuff going on in the Roman Empire, and yet Paul is saying all governments at the end of the day have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. There are certain things in your life that you owe to other parties, particularly to the authorities that are in your life. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay, you owe All of those things to all of those entities. You owe honor to everyone. You owe love to the brotherhood. You owe fear or reverence, however you want to say it, to God. And you owe honor to the emperor or to the governing authorities. Now, obviously, there's a hierarchy there because all the authority that God has invested in the government is a subsidiary kind of authority, right? God is the ultimate authority. And the only reason the government has authority is because God has allowed them to have that authority. But it doesn't make that authority illegitimate. They are responsible to God for their authority, and you are responsible to God for how you submit to that governing authority. So an example that I probably used before, in a situation you probably found yourself in in the workplace is I'm sure at some point you've been at work 
and you have wanted to have a spiritual conversation with somebody, to tell somebody about Jesus, to talk about the scripture, to do something like that. You have an opportunity for that, except there's a problem. You recognize that your company didn't hire you and isn't paying you to tell people about Jesus, right? That's not why you were brought on board. And so you recognize that at a level, you owe your employer something. You owe them your work, your effort, your focus, because they are paying you for that. And also, you owe God something. You owe God the calling that you have on your life to tell other people the good news of the gospel. So our first instinct when we are placed in one of those situations is to say, choose whom this day you will serve. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve man? That's what our first instinct is, right? It's gotten a lot of people fired. It's also gotten people probably where they have done something to ignore their other responsibility, the one that they have to God. But what I'm suggesting is that maybe Jesus is pointing to the fact that there is a tension and there's supposed to be a tension there. That you can owe multiple things to multiple people and have to find out how to balance that stuff in your own walk. It's not illegitimate that your boss comes and says, I want your work. It's not illegitimate that your government comes and says, I want your submission. Those are both normal and right things, according to God. You rightly owe something to both of them. And so there's a tension there. We should recognize that tension, okay? Not ignore it, not try to pretend like there is no tension, there shouldn't be tension, just pick a side and let the chips fall there where they may. That's not what happens. Jesus says, you can give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and you can give God what belongs to God. And there's going to be some people who don't like that. There's going to be some push and pull there, but that's the way it should be. Another thing that we might say from this is, if you rightly owe something to both of them, then radicalizing your view that is running to the extreme on any issue is probably not usually the best way to be faithful. Does that make sense? So they are putting, they're trying to put Jesus in a trap. And they're saying, you have to pick a side and you have to go all in on that side. Because if you don't, well, there's no, there's no middle ground. You got to go all in. Jesus. And the result of that is going to be, you are going to alienate one of these two groups of people. You have to wholeheartedly reject this side and accept this one or vice versa. But Jesus says, I'm not going to enter that trap. That's not the way the world actually is. That dichotomy is not actually there. Not only can I render honor and obedience to both of these parties, but I have to. That is what God has commanded me to do. He's commanded me to love my my people and my neighbor. And he's also commanded me to submit to the governing authorities. So I have to do both of these things. But even then, there's something to learn, right? There's a, there's, it's something to learn about the fact that there is nuance in all of these issues. There's something to be tweaked. There's something to be, um, ideas to be balanced. Is that to say that there are never hard line issues that we have to accept? No. Sometimes, man, positions are mutually exclusive, right? Sometimes there is no way to say, well, there's, there's a good or a nuance or a benefit on both sides. Sometimes you just have to say, no, we have to go with this side. Okay. That happens. 
And moreover, our political process sort of forces that on us in a way, right? Like we don't, I was thinking about the fact, would it be interesting if instead of voting on, on people in our elections, we voted on policies? Like what if we just brought a government in and said, you guys do whatever we tell you to do. And then instead of voting on the person who was running it, we voted on the policies that would be enacted. That would be interesting. I'm not sure if it would work, but it would be interesting. But instead, we are put into a position in our political world where we say, no, you got to pick a side. And there's only two sides. So there's a dichotomy there, right? So you can do one of three things. You can pick this, you can pick that, or you can vote for McMuffin, right? Um, whatever that guy's name was. Um, and that's all you can do. Or you can not vote at all. Okay. Um, gosh, isn't that sad? Nobody even remembers that guy. Um, you, that's, that's the options. Okay. There is not an infinite number of, you know, mixtures and whatever. That's the, that's part of the, the problem of our political system, but it's also the way things are. All right. And so let me close. What time? How much time we got? We, okay. Yeah. We're, I'll do it real quick because we're a little bit ahead of schedule, which is weird. Um, so I messed up a couple of weeks ago. Many of you were privy to my messing up, as is typical on Facebook, because it's the worst, okay? And so I commented on a thing on Facebook. And so I'm going to go ahead and say I didn't do any of the things that I'm telling you to do right now, okay? I, I missed them all. Um, but here's what the deal was. You remember a couple months back, there was the whole issue of Biden and debt for, uh, college debt forgiveness, right? And people kept on online making an analogy. They kept on saying, hey, if Jesus died for people's sin and forgave their debts, then it's the same thing. You ought to be pro uh, debt for college debt forgiveness. Okay. So I put a thing online because that bothered me. That statement bothered me. Just that statement. Okay. Just that statement. It bothered me because I go, one of these things is not like the other. All right. These are not the same thing. There's not the same issues involved. There's not the same process. There's none of the same things. OK, you can't just use the word debt and forgiveness and then be like, see, they're exactly the same. That bothered me. So I put a thing online where I just said, hey, man, I see a lot of people making this comment and I don't like that. I think it's a problem. They're not the same thing. You were misunderstanding the gospel and you're misrepresenting the gospel by saying those things. All right. Now, um, so then what immediately happened is somebody comes back and says, well, hey, Ash, here's the reason why debt forgiveness is a good thing. A couple other people came back and said, here's the reason why debt forgiveness is a bad thing. Now, here's something was the case. A, that wasn't the issue, wasn't the debate, wasn't what we were talking about. Two, none of these people know their rear end from a hole in the ground. Okay, they're not equipped or expert people to comment on any of these things that are super complex, right? That have economic, government, moral, social, educational, like there's too, it's too complicated. Okay, again, that nuanced idea. There's not just two sides, you're either for it or you're against it. No, man, there is an infinite set of issues, that all should be addressed in this thing. But that's not the way the issue is presented. It's presented, you on this side or you on this side, okay? Now, again, that wasn't even the question. But you know what I did? Man, I, I took the bait and I said, well, you know what? 
here's the thing about that one thing that you just said, and then here's the one thing about that thing that you just said, and started going back and forth, okay? The second thing that I knew and did not acknowledge is not everybody in that conversation was good actors. In fact, if I go back and look at that post, I would probably say one or two out of the probably two dozen people who commented or liked on it, let's just say commented, were really interested in any kind of debate on the subject, right? And in fact, I know for sure that several people who commented on it do not like me, do not respect me, and would love to see me, the pastorate, the church, Christianity, and whatever else decried, put down in general. Okay? So again, there's this piece where I'm like, well, I feel like I'm going to give an answer to these people. And here, what was the truth? They weren't looking for answers. They were setting traps. Okay? I'm smarter than all of this, but I'm also stupider than all of this. Right. Because I get into the same thing that we all get into. I go, well, I didn't have anything to do Saturday night. So let's go. Right. Um, and I always have something else to do. You should have something else to do. OK. That's just a great example um, of me being a bonehead. Right. Of, of, of not recognizing the very things that we're talking about here is that, man, these issues are a lot more complicated and we should probably present them as being complicated. Two, not everybody's looking for an answer. Not everybody's got your best interest at heart, okay? You're not probably, most people aren't looking to be convinced. They're not even looking for good arguments. They're just looking for set traps, okay? So I think we see sort of all these principles in here. I know we keep on bringing, I bring things back to social media more often than I should because, man, it just keeps on being such a dumb part of our lives. And so many of you are smarter than me and you've said, I'm writing all of this stuff off and not engaging with it anyway. And amen. God bless you. Um, so you, you are, you are doing a wise thing. You're doing what Jesus would do. You're not falling into the trap. In fact, you're saying, I'm not even going to the trap makers. I'm not even going to engage with the trap makers because it's just one big trap. Good for you. Um, I got too much Scott Summers in me. So um, anyway, um, so here's what I want to do. Let's go to the Lord in time of prayer. Um, and, and as we close, again, this is sort of an interesting passage in, in the context because it's sort of this, it drops an issue into this larger thing. Like we're telling a story about Jesus heading towards the cross, right? Take, recognizing the calling that God has of stepping to the cross. And then it's sort of like, and right in the middle of that larger narrative, it's sort of like, Let's get into politics just a little bit or whatever and just kind of drop that little piece in there. So it's, it's an odd story in some ways, and yet I think there's a lot that we can learn there. So this is what I want to do as we close. Um, gosh, it's, it's, it's a bummer to say this, but man, we're two years out where we've already stepped in. It's already beginning. The pot stirring has already started. Okay. And we all know the, the, the not good of the last few years when it circles around these things. Okay. I think that we as a church have done very well in, in, in the things that we're talking about, where we have seen these issues as complex with nuance. Okay. Um, where we have agreed where we agree and we have 
we have said, yeah, and there's some, there's some complexities over here. And so if there's some disagreements, we recognize there's a reason for those disagreements and things like that. We have kept the gospel at the center. We've not gone looking to pick fights. And so I appreciate that. Um, because I can tell you right now, that is not the way a lot of churches have gone over the last six years. All right. But I would just say is we're about to come into a new era. We're about to step into a new time of these things. I mean, keep these things on your head. Okay. Um, keep them top of mind. <laughs> Sorry. That's a, that's a college Um, keep them, keep them in the forefront. Okay. Um, people are going to want to bait you. Don't take the trap. Recognize that there can be multiple goods and we can affirm multiple goods and affirm the evils that are on both sides too. Okay. Um, Always be ready to give an answer. Do so with love and gentleness. All right. But be wise when it comes to the conversations. Wiser than your pastor. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we recognize that um, the the interchange of politics, of of God, what it need, means to be a citizen of a nation, all the responsibilities that come with that. God, we recognize that these are issues, areas of. Um, intense tension in, in our lives. Um, they are in, they are situations and instances of fracture within our nation and with our society. Um, God, they are sadly even instances of fracture within your church in many places, God. And so we pray that that would not be the case, um, among our congregation. Uh, we pray that we would be as, as, innocent as doves and as wise as serpents. Um, we pray that we would be um, always ready to give an answer and yet not willing to fall into a trap. God, that we would not make issues gray, that we would see things as right and wrong, good and evil, and yet we would recognize that those things can be mingled just as they are in our own hearts, God, just as our own motives and own thoughts and own intentions are mingled with, with all kinds of sin, of selfishness, of, of, of self-interest, of, of all kinds of different things. God, recognize that um, the views of the world uh, sit in a similar way, that there is good to be seen and encouraged, and that there is evil to be um, spoken against and, and uh, to be fought against. So help us to do both of those things. Help us to... Um, God, in all things, not to follow a philosophy or a party or an ideology, but God, help us to follow Jesus Christ in all things, um, to live as he has lived, to think as he has thought, um, God, to, to repent where we need to repent and to trust where we need to trust. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
sentencing the closing statement.
Amen. Uh, good to see you. Glad you're here tonight. Um, hope you have a great Thanksgiving week. Um, if you're traveling, hope your your uh, your travels are safe and you get to where you're going. Um, hope it's an encouraging time with family and and all the stresses that come along with that are mitigated, um, and you can have a time of, of blessing and fellowship and Thanksgiving with with those you love. Um, have a good week. See you next week. Here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you. Give you peace. See you next week.